I'm not super familiar with rucking besides, you know, from reading this book, but like I'd heard about it, you know, people in the military, I knew, you know, do those long, like, uh, walks with like a weighted pack, uh, for, for training purposes. But I never knew that the, like it made you, it leaned you out if you were overweight, but it bulked, it like gave you additional mass if you were sort of underweight or under muscled probably is like the right word. So it, it kind of is a way to just make yourself overall fit. And I came away, I mean, yeah, it was kind of reading like an ad a little bit, but I came away from it being like, I want to do that. Like I'm going to make that yeah. part of my normal working out. <laughs> it's it's effective. I don't, I don't think it was paid for by GoRuck, but it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, to be fair, I went to the GoRuck site like immediately after the chat. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I already oh, had I a backpack. <laughs> I already had a backpack with the weight slots, but it made me go buy the weights to put in it. And yep. it's a good workout. Yeah. Have you done it? Yeah. I, I do it on our morning walk sometimes. So Cosette and I will go for a walk at around 8am and it's usually two miles round trip. And tossing in 30, 35 pounds of weight, you get a great workout doing it. It's very effective. What's the take on putting the weight on your shoulders versus like backpacking style, resting it on your hips or like a vest where it's front and back? The He makes the argument, and I've seen this argument elsewhere, that the backpack, whether you're using shoulders or hips, I think they actually say that you should alternate based on what's getting sore and tired, you know, shift the weight around Mm -hmm. as you're going. But the argument is that that's better than a weighted vest because with a weighted vest, something about it being so centered, it doesn't do the same work for your posture that a backpack does. Mm -hmm. And so you probably get most of the other benefits, but wearing the backpack with the weight straightens you out, makes you stand up a little bit taller Whereas the weighted vest, you could still have that bad posture. That seems to me to be the main difference. I guess also with the weighted vest, you can't rest it on your hips, right? It's all shoulders. Mm -hmm. I must feel like for my posture, I would need all the weight in the front. So I get, I start pulling back. Oh, in a normal, yeah, I guess when I take off the weights, yeah, you would have been pulling back. Interesting. I guess they're making the other side of the argument, which is the weight is pulling you back. Instead of you yeah. having oh, to make a reaction to it. Yeah. yeah. I mentioned this on like two episodes ago that I've been playing VR with 40 pounds. That's right. It's super hot with yeah. the weight vest. Yeah. 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 Who's going to make like the hunter gatherer game for, uh, for VR? Like there go, go like hunt a, hunt a, a mammoth or something. You have to throw a spear. You have to build a yeah. fire. Yeah, but you you have to do it with your team. You know, it's got yeah. to be like <laughs> <laughs> it would be kind of like don't starve or one of those survival games. But yeah. actually, that would be a pretty fun game if that's what I'm thinking. You load in and you've got a base and you're building it up over time. That would be a pretty killer VR app. Yeah, <laughs> That'd be cool. That'd I be wonder cool. what like he says three days is like the rule for being outside 20 minutes per day is like the minimum to get some of the benefit. I wonder how much of that you could simulate from VR. Like if someone's deep in the city, we they are can't such get out. Tech it's like, nerds. Like, <laughs> well, it's just instead of being like, yeah, let's just like get out and like spend time outside. It's like, I wonder how you could simulate this in VR. Outside <laughs> is scary. It's, like, <laughs> it's definitely interesting. If you could get like 80% of the benefit, and you could do it like by putting on a headset instead of, I think about like parts of Manhattan where it's probably you're at least like 45 minutes from a decent park, right? Or the park you're nearby is like Madison yeah. Square Park. You know, it's like, I don't think you're that getting that question. benefit. 
it, yeah, it actually might be better to just do something immersive in your living room than go to a block size park. I don't know. Maybe it's That's not actually a great idea. point. Yeah. It's actually a great point. And if you think about how many people live in urban environments, like especially like think about cities around the world, you yeah. know, uh, yeah, New York of all like Manhattan, especially has at least some parks. I mean, you go to like some other cities like in Asia and stuff and it's like, you know, the par- a park, it's like not even a concept because yeah. there's no space. Uh, so yeah, I wonder, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know the answer to this. I'm sure somebody does. How do your eyes focus when they're in VR? Do they focus as if things are far away or do they focus as if the screen is right in front of them like it is? Mm. Because I know that one of the benefits of getting out from behind the screen is that your eyes, exactly, they, they dilate in different ways. They look around, they focus at different lengths. So I wonder what happens when you're in VR, because it is a very different experience. You do have the perception of depth at the very least. And so are your eyes actually acting as if there's depth or is it a brain trick? I don't know. Just in there, like your eyes. That would explain why your eyes hurt after being in VR for a while. Yeah. I, I definitely have that experience. I don't know if you do a deal, but I could never stay in it for more than 20 or 30 minutes because my eyes would get sore and... Yeah, I never even tried because I just get tired playing super hard. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're not wearing enough weight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, should we say what book? Are you? Oh, by, by the way. Okay. So be, and anybody who's listening can send us feedback on this if you want. But uh, listening back through our episodes, I think the quotation is kind of a boring place to start. <laughs> it's not very hooky. It It's very slow and low energy and... It, even me editing, I had this experience of ugh, just falling asleep listening to this serious quotation reading. And obviously, having moments of serious information is is fun, but I don't think it's a very hooky place to start, I think. No, but also, Nat, you and I at one point thought about getting rid of it. And Adil's words were something, I'm paraphrasing you, but something along the lines of like, that's what gets me ready to listen to a made you think. Oh. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing just now. Yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, anybody who's listening, if you have thoughts on this, send, send us a tweet or something because yeah. Let's get feedback. I, I definitely, when I listen to other podcasts, I do enjoy the in media res opening where they seem to just be in the middle of a conversation and you popped into it. It's kind of like walking up to somebody at a cocktail party and you're walking up and they're already talking about something and you're saying, Oh, Hey, what are you guys talking about? And then the three of us say, well, we're talking about the comfort crisis by Michael Easter. Thanks for joining the table. We're glad you're here. And boom, opening. We did it. Okay. Now we can go. (laughs) I don't know. There's why do that. Why don't we get rid of it for like five and see what happens. Five episodes. Yeah. Just why don't we do it? Why don't we do a Twitter poll? <laughs> we do a Twitter poll too. Vox okay. Populi. Vox I will abide by the results of the poll. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I will say that there's probably a little bit of a difference here too between YouTube and podcasts. Because if I stumbled on a YouTube video and it's opening with this reading of a quotation, that's not hooky at all. But the conversation mm. is kind of hooky. And the the you know, YouTube growth is pretty useful for a podcast. I don't know. It's worth it's worth us experimenting with. We're doing I, lots I'm, of experiments. I'm hundred percent down to experiment with it. I I 
many times the quote we are like force fitting the quote. Like some books have that's some true. great quotes, you know, and it's like, yeah, there's one that's like really representative of the book, really hooky, and you can do that. But then there's other times where we're like, uh, we don't have a quote. What do we do? Like, yeah, yeah. We just, and then we lose the first five plus minutes of recording trying to decide on which quotation to use. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I say we try to jump into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, today's book is The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. I found this book. How did I find this book? Okay. I, I wrote an article on my blog. I think it was the one titled Raising Your Ceiling, basically talking about how we've gotten really soft. And if we do more hard things, it raises our ceiling on what we think is possible in our lives. And then a bunch of people in the comments of that post said, oh, have you read The Comfort Crisis? You, you should check it out. And I said, okay, cool. And put that on my potential list. And then I listened to Peter Atia's podcast with Michael and thought it was really good. And so that was when I said, okay, hey, you know, let's pick this up. And I read it really quickly. I really enjoyed it. The The one thing that, and Peter mentioned this too, but the one thing I really, really loved is the style the book is written in because it would be very easy to do the typical nonfiction book formula of here's my argument. Comfort is bad. It's making us unhappy, anxious, whatnot. Each chapter is going to be a different subsection of that thought. I'm going to open it with a random story from history or whatever that I've kind of shoehorned into supporting my argument. And then I'm going to follow it up with the explanation of the idea. And then you're going to have little key takeaways at the end. And he doesn't do that, which no. I, I found very refreshing. I, I honestly can't read those books anymore. <laughs> I Same. I I just get so bored so quickly of the format and I typically just skip the story and go to the meaty part and then skip the summaries as well. And you, you finish the whole book in 20 minutes because that's kind of like where the chunk of it is. But the, the way Michael does the book is it's all centered around this caribou hunt that he does in Northern Alaska with a professional hunter and he's doing it to stretch his own experience of what comfort and hardship and challenge are. He's never done a big challenging hunt like this, let alone lived in the Arctic. And so you have the narrative of this caribou hunt pulling through the whole book and then subsections of his experience on this crazy Arctic caribou hunt lead into some of the ideas and his experiences back in the real world, trying to handle this ultra cushy living and the consequences of that. And the other narrative thread through it is that Michael was, he struggled with alcoholism for years and he yeah. was actually, uh, it sounds like a, a pretty severe alcoholic while he was writing for men's health and writing about how to be healthy. And so he had this really bad, it's not even imposter syndrome. It would be kind of like internal conflict and struggle where he's trying to give this advice on how to be healthy, but he's living this other lifestyle. And part of what helped him get out of it was bringing more hardship and challenge into his life. So those two narrative threads as, as the core of the book, I thought made it way more enjoyable than your typical nonfiction self-help book. Yeah. I was describing this book to someone and her response was like, Oh, that sounds like a pop science book. And I was thinking about why it didn't feel like a pop science book. And that it's exactly what you said. It's the thread was 
weaved together instead of him starting with, you're right, like a couple, the, the first two chapters being like, why you need to get uncomfortable? And here's like the studies that back that and then doing like an example for each of the next like 12 chapters till you get to the publisher approved 240 pages. <laughs> and yep. then that's the book. <laughs> And that it could have been that book, so it's a lot of credit to him for yeah. organizing it the way he did because it kept you, it like kept tying the hunt to, or sorry, it kept tying the concepts into the things he was actually experiencing on the hunt. So it's like a story with all of these like supporting sub stories, and then oh. I also like that each of the sub stories there was like a different you know expert or two that he was uh, bringing into that as well, and they all had really cool like histories and things that they had worked on which was also nice like the the set of experts that he got on to help him with this was pretty impressive were either of you reminded of emergency mm, yes a bit yeah. i didn't think of it explicitly yeah. but now that you mention it yeah similar style and they yeah. were both very like very fun kind of almost like gripping at points like the scene with the caribou stampede was yeah really cool like I really enjoy having that narrative thread to follow. I think it just makes yeah. it so much more enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. So I think the structure of it was awesome. You know, the other thing was a lot of the concepts in the book were things that I had heard of or had read about before, but it was never tied together with this theme of comfort, you know, and like, it's such yes. a simple concept. It's like, oh, we're too comfortable. And you know, it, it makes sense once you like after you read this book, at least for me, I felt like at the end, I was like, well, that could have been obvious, you know, all this stuff in this book. But because there is some anti-fragile stuff tied to this as well. It's like, you know, pushing yourself outside your comfort zone makes you stronger as long as it doesn't kill you. Right. It's like the same kind of idea. But at, but I hadn't I actually think this is a better way to explain it to people or to, to understand it is this idea of comfort because everyone knows what that means. And it feel you know yeah. what it feels like. Whereas anti-fragile, it almost feels like academic in a way. Like unless you were already familiar with Taleb, then you use anti-fragile as like just a way to like communicate with people who know the same concept. But to communicate to someone who's never heard of the concept, this actually makes it a lot easier to explain. There's so I, I don't remember where I saw this, probably on Twitter or in a Substack, but it was making the argument that good writing is not actually teaching you something new it's helping explain something you're starting to think in a way that you couldn't totally put together on your own because it's very it's very hard to go in completely cold to an idea and then be convinced of it in a book and if you think about it that probably happens very rarely for you but the best the books that we often think of as the best are the ones where we've started thinking about an idea and then we find the book and it explains it in this really, really clear, concise, it ties it together in a way that's helpful for us moving forward or us explaining it to others. And I think that's what Michael did a good job of here with this unifying theme of comfort and to a lesser extent, boredom. I think boredom was the other really big theme here where yep. it, it's his central argument is sort of that because we want or because we tend towards this highly comfortable always entertained life these other bad things are happening and i'm i'm going to show you how it's leading to all of those things because like you guys were saying we've heard most of these ideas in some form before but tying them to this idea of comfort seeking i hadn't seen done quite this explicitly and it's very compelling 
the way he does it. And it gi- it gives you a few... I-, I like having little hooks to take away from books. Very simple things to remember that will actually make your life better afterwards. And those two of, you know, one, making your life more comfortable is not necessarily going to improve it in the long term. And then two, this other one, I, this was one of the quotations that I highlighted and pulled out was uh, maybe when I get home, instead of thinking the off repeated less phone, it might be more productive to think more boredom. The uh, screens. Yes. Oh, go ahead. I was just very surprised by the, uh, the the brain activity when you're using your phone, even if it's something mindless, is still actually mm. extremely high and contributes considerably to fatigue. Whereas like when I'm scrolling through Reddit, I'm like, I don't really feel like my brain is doing anything. Uh, so yeah. Th- yeah, but it's also like you don't have the mind-wandering thoughts that you do, which, which is why like in some ways things like um, – running or or like even working out but not listening to like a podcast any kind of like cardio i should say i don't i don't know if this applies to lifting because there's a lot of stoppage time that you can you know get you you don't get in that same focus zone maybe some people do i don't i don't feel that unless i'm doing like a cardio but like extended cardio with some music that kind of fades into the background over time because it's repetitive so like something instrumental no words or just like beats I don't know. I feel like that type of zoning out, you at least I never get scrolling on Twitter or Reddit yeah. or, or any kind of phone based activity. Like I, I never get those like freeform thoughts the way that I get with like a long cardio session. I think yeah. about like when we do the long races, like when we did like the Spartan mm. race, which was like 14 some miles. It took us four and a half hours to finish. What was I thinking about? Because I don't have, music, <laughs> I don't have headphones. Maybe we should just quickly highlight his arguments about boredom, right? Because there's yes, yeah, yeah. there's the ob- I think there's the obvious one, which is we're never really bored anymore. And every, I'd say everybody over the age of, gosh, what is it now? Sixteen? <laughs> it's crazy to me that there are definitely teenagers who have no idea what it means or what it's like to stand in line and have nothing to do. But for those of us <laughs> who are a little bit older we do remember a time when you might just be standing somewhere and have nothing to entertain yourself with. And that world is gone because you can always pull out your phone. And the, the crux of his argument about why that's bad, it's obvious that we live in this world, but why does that matter? And his argument about why it matters is that by being hyper reactive to any instance of boredom by immediately entertaining ourselves by immediately stating it, we're not only losing that subconscious processing time where these cool ideas come from or these realizations come from, you know, that's one part of it. But there's also this element of we're losing the ability to react to stress. We're losing the ability to kind of self-regulate by (laughs) externalizing our regulation. And it leads to this argument that our lack of boredom might actually be causing some of these feelings of really anxiety seems like the big one. I didn't get the sense that this one was as much. There's probably some tie to depression in here, but the two big, or I guess the, the three big kind of ubiquitous psychological or mental health challenges of our time seem to be depression, anxiety, and attention. 
And this one definitely ties in closely with the anxiety and attention side. And his the, the reason he says it's not necessarily less phone, but more boredom is the more we can train ourselves to be comfortable in boredom, the more we regain some ability to not be hyper anxious and reactive all the time, not be constantly flitting our attention between things. And I, I also like that he didn't just immediately go into, well, you need to meditate, right? Because everybody's heard that advice. And I'm, and it seems just, like he does, but he just, yeah, he I, I think he cares about that, but, yeah, but he wasn't uh, preaching that at all. Yeah, no, no. And I, I do think that there is a little bit of, it, some of the meditation advice is not always helpful too, because if you meditate for 10, 20 minutes a day, but then you're hyper reactive to notifications and email the rest of the time, it's probably not actually doing that much for you. Right. You have to kind of cultivate this lifestyle of boredom seeking or at least boredom allowing. The studies yeah. were super interesting on the connection between boredom and creativity. Mm. you Give some yeah. fo- I forget exactly how they set it up, but you had like one group that would get bored for 30 minutes and then complete an exercise and another group that had some kind of stimuli and just the board group just blew the rest of them out of the water. Yeah, I think it was 50% better performance. It was like not even like, oh, it was like 5% better. It was 50% better. Yeah. And then the uh, Torrance test, right? That's what it was called. The Torrance test for creativity. Yes. Yeah. How like much that's IQ. dropped over the years. Well, it's both dropped over the years, but also the uh, it's so much more correlated to success and like successful outcomes later in life when you test children uh, on the Torrance test, especially when compared to like an IQ test. Totally. Mm-hmm. The the metaphor that I really like that he he used for this section too was the whole idea of rest recovery for working out. Right, like you mm-hmm. wouldn't just work out the same muscle every day all day and expect to get great results because you never get that recovery time in the same way. Like what the, the analogy that he's drawing here is that we are essentially uh, contracting the attention muscle all day long when we're on our phone, you know, seven hours a day or or whatever it is um, and not giving it that rest recovery time. And so Nat, to your point about anxiety, that may be like what's, you know, why we're in this sort of hyper anxious state. Uh, not, not we in terms of everybody, but why that's become such a, such a problem for modern society. And then they compared it to some of the other societies. Like they had that, where did he go? Uh, Bhutan? Bhutan, yeah. Bhutan, yeah. And about how it's like, you know, they're not successful materially, but they have like a different attitude to where, I mean, that, that was almost another part of the book, but at least I drew comparisons between our sort of hyper anxious world and the world that they live in and why it's so um, like the things that are so different about it. Totally. So how do you do this? Now that we know, what, now that we know what's right. I, I think right? Adil, you actually, so, I mean, I think both of you guys do a better job than me at this. It's something that I think I could do a lot better job of is, you know, less of the notifications, less of like the reactive life. Like I think you guys do a good job of lifestyle design. Um, to I, minimize I this. I'm doing a bad job right uh, yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, Nat, I think you go in waves because you're sometimes very active on Twitter and other times not. Dude, yeah, I'm but glad Twitter's I dying. I'm finally yeah. going to be <laughs> We're going to be so much more productive as people. <laughs> I'm going to be so much happier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think that's, I mean, that's like probably step one for most people is just lifestyle design. You know, I think all the other stuff is almost downstream of 
of that. And then I think also letting yourself get bored. Like uh, Nat, you were saying we don't ever stand in lines and are bored. There's one exception to that that I've found is when I go into a grocery store, but I I forgot to bring a bag or I'm like too lazy to, oh, and you have to, to get a everything. bag. And I, or yeah, I've got a cart. I'm like holding everything. So I can't pull out my phone. And then I'm like waiting in line. It's a little bit uncomfortable. Even if it's yeah. only for like two minutes, I'm like, oh, this is weird. So <laughs> you, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the, the big question that I, I love this framing of don't think less phone, think more boredom. Because I'm sure you guys have had this experience. As soon as you tell yourself not to do something, you really want to do that thing. Right? Of course. <laughs> you think about it, especially somebody else tells you not to do it. And so always thinking, okay, I need to be off my phone, off my phone. I need to put it away. It's really like fixating on the phone. Whereas there's this better question of what are things you can do that will allow boredom to happen? Mm. And your your example of the races is a good one, a deal of, okay, go for a long run or a long bike ride without music and some of it will naturally happen. Go sit in the sauna. Uh, playing with dogs and kids is a good one too because that kind of naturally pulls your attention, but not in a hyper-stimulated sense. The other thing I've been doing more of that I find very helpful as a balance between wanting to listen to music and podcasts, but also wanting to cultivate this is I try to be really sensitive to when my mind starts to wander in the sense of like, it starts thinking about other ideas or whatnot. And as soon as that happens, I'll turn off whatever I'm listening to. So sometimes you'll be listening to a podcast or whatever, and you'll feel like a little spark of an idea or something rolling around in your head as soon as i get that feeling i turn off the audio and try to Mm. sit with it for a while until it passes because then i'm kind of giving space for it but i'm but i'm not always in that space because i do like listening to podcasts and things and i like it when i'm driving and i don't know I'm, i'm not always in that idea mode but occasionally stopping the listening to things in particular does seem to help me a little bit. The thing I feel like such a big part of it is just knowing yourself. And like for me, for example, it's just the going extreme on a thing for a short period of time to re-index myself Mm. goes such a long way, which I know just like probably doesn't work for everybody, but it's worked phenomenally. Last year I did probably the most extreme version of it which was I had this very social traveling summer. And then I was like, fuck it. And I drove from New York to California alone for 10 days. And I just didn't listen to music. And I, I listened to one audiobook, but you know, it's like a six hour audiobook, and it was 10 days on the road. Uh, <laughs> <Audiobook>. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was amazing. It was like 10 days completely alone. I did my birthday alone. That was really interesting too. Never had done that before. Some guy took a photo of me at a gas station in Kansas. Uh, I was like, That's hey, man, it's my birthday. Can you take a picture? He was like, what <laughs> the hell? <laughs> uh, but it like it just completely recentered. I don't know. Uh, Angela is very good at like the inverse. Angela is very good at like a 10% change consistently. And uh, I just, I don't know. I have a lot of trouble with those. Well, to your point, Adil, he, he says this in the book that 
getting out into nature for three days a month. What, what was the prescription exactly? It, it was something like that, but getting, getting away from your devices and everything for a few days a month or for a longer period each year does help provide that reset. And I thought this was yeah. cool in the book. He, he says that there are only a dozen places in the lower 48 where you could go and conceivably not hear any, any sounds yeah. of civilization, yeah. no planes, cars. It, it's a short list, but one of them was the boundary waters canoe area in Northern Minnesota. And I was there in August and I, I just thought it was cool that he shouted that yeah. out. But I was going to say to your point, when I went on that trip and it's true, you literally don't even hear planes or boats or anything. And you often go days without seeing any other people besides your camp. And I was there for six days and I'd say the effects of that on my reactiveness and time on social media and everything lasted a solid six months. Like I still feel them six months later. And that's, I mean, that's pretty good ROI, right? Go for a week every six months or something and kind of reset yourself. And then once you start to feel it getting a little bit out of hand, you go do another reset and correct it. It's way easier to reset your baseline so that you don't want it than it is to fight the urge every day to do something that you want to do. Yeah, you're probably going to fail at fighting the urge, but you can reset the baseline. It's a lot easier. I think the three of us are probably similar in our failures to fight the urge, whereas uh, <laughs> seeing Angela with her discipline has convinced me that others are are indeed capable of this. No, uh, I actually think <laughs> Angela I, I actually probably might be more of the outlier, though. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at average screen time, it's four to five yeah. hours a day That's on true. phones, which is... That's true. I think I think Uh, everybody has different things that work for them too. Like I keep almost all notifications off on my phone. Like I have just basically calls and messages. I think that's actually it. I mean, there's nothing Mm. really else. I don't have any social media notifications on. I still have social media on my phone, which is a whole separate problem. Like the pull, you know. But I don't have email notifications. I, I, I think it's only messages and calls. Actually, now that I think about it, Sheena on the other hand has tons of notifications on, but she just doesn't care about them. Like. She mm. misplaces her phone all that like in the apartment. It's just like she doesn't even know where her phone is. Meanwhile, if her phone is sitting there and I'm in that room and I see her phone like going off with these <laughs> notifications, I'm like, what's going on on your phone? And she's like, oh, yeah, where's my phone? It's like doesn't even like care about the phone. Right. It's like so I, I think some of it's personality based. Yeah. That like I would die if I had that many notifications on, on my phone. I would just never get anything done. Yeah. But it works for some people. Like, you know, they just they're able to tune it out or they just, you know, not paying as much attention to it. The numbers in the book, not that you were referencing, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly, I was actually surprised by how low they were. So it wasn't a few days a month. I believe it was a study out of Finland and it was five hours outside per month. Mm. And then oh, yeah, the three right. day number comes from the threshold for like resetting I think it was like the alpha waves and theta waves or whatever in your brain. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it was like by day three, you had like rested your brain once you'd been outside for that long. It's not a crazy amount of time. Five hours is very little. Totally. This type of trip, Nat, that you went on, like that seems that seems like a good way to do it. I think the way that he did it in the book, this hunting trip was really cool, too. Uh, 
I think I've only done not accessible one trip. for most people though. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't like an right, easy right. trip to go on. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the question: is what's a what's a sustainable way to do it for most people? Yeah, I mean, I had gone to Arizona earlier this year on this like road trip, and a lot of that area just doesn't have cell service. So that was because yeah, you're going through like the Navajo reservation, and like it, it was a it was a great trip. It was just like you know, inadvertently became this type of trip where I wasn't yeah. online that much. Um, but yeah, it's hard otherwise, like you kind of have to plan it out and do it in a way that forces you to not be on your phone all the time. Totally. Cause even if and, you're out camping, if you're in a place that has service service, like people are probably on their phone at night. Yeah. And it does feel like that's kind of what it resolves down to is one finding ways to schedule short trips or excursions where you're fully in nature and don't have the option of easy stimulation And then the second one being find ways to work it into your day, whether that's not bringing your phone on a walk or not listening to music in the car or putting your phone in another room when you're at home. It there's, there's like the macro and the micro, right? Which seems like the prescription for getting more boredom as, and he makes the compelling argument for why you want it to, right? Like it does help with these feelings of anxiety, stress, and a lot of, things people struggle with to one degree or another. Let's talk a little about, cause the phone piece is actually a pretty small piece of the yeah. book. Yeah. A yeah. lot of it is around just like get hot, get cold, get outside. Yeah. Yeah. Put something heavy the, on. Yeah. Talk about the Misogi, Misogi idea. Oh, I love that. I, feel like I yeah, love that, that was, idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this, this is a concept that he introduces in the book as a way to, I was talking about it a bit in the beginning, but it's a way to reframe your perception of what you are capable of enduring, completing, surviving, whatever. And the idea is that every year you take on a challenge. And this is from the book. Uh, There are only two rules. Rule number one is that it has to be really fucking hard. Rule number two is that you can't die. (laughs) <laughs> so uh and that the third the third rule which is like an informal one but that i really liked was that it should be something kind of quirky and where you can't easily compare yourself to other people because if you run a marathon then you you know your exact time you know how to train for it you know what time everybody else got it's very easy to compare yourself to other people but one of the misogis they mentioned in the book was moving a boulder across the San Francisco Bay or something or or like moving it under a bridge in the Bay. And so they had to, and they had to get it done in, what was it a week or 10 days? And so they're diving down underwater to move this boulder (laughs) for a week. And yeah, it's, it's such a ridiculous thing. Probably nobody else is going to do it. Uh, And, and the other informal rule is that you should, only have about a 50% chance of succeeding. Right. So, I, and that, that's where I think he makes a really good point about some of these quote unquote challenges that we do. Like, again, if you, if you want to run a marathon in under four hours or something, you can set a very specific training schedule where you know you're going to hit it unless you have a terrible day. It's, you know, you're probably going to have an 80 or 90% success rate. But when's the last time you did something with a 50% success rate? And you can just look at your history of challenges. And if you mostly complete the things that you set out to do, then you're probably thinking too small. You could probably be doing quite a bit more. When was the last time you guys did something where it would have been a greater than 50% chance of failure? 
Dude, I was thinking about it. I have no idea. I I can't name one. Yeah. I can't I, think of one either. I can't think of one either. It's it it was kind of sad actually when I was reading. I was like, wow, I probably set the bar too low. Or it's <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. I just couldn't think of them. Because I feel like I, if I had a fifth only 50% chance of succeeding, I wouldn't make that like the target. You know what I mean? Like I would set the bar like just yeah. as an example, like one I was yeah. thinking of that I've never done. I know this is not the point of a Masogi, like you're not supposed to advertise it. So this is, so this is just an example of one that for me would be a Masogi. I'm not saying I'm doing this one, but <laughs> I've never done a five day fast. Like to me, I don't mm. know if I could actually do that. Mm. Right. So for me that like, if I, if you told me right now to do one, I 50% feels right. Like uh, of odds of success. Cause I've never yeah. gone that high. Yeah. So that's like one example that I was thinking, it was like, Oh, that'd be an interesting one. Like where I don't, I actually don't know if I could do it, but I know I wouldn't die because if I was feeling like that, I could just eat, you know? <laughs> the, On the fasting note, I had a friend who last year, I think like last July, she was like, yeah, I'll do a three-day fast. I've never done one before. It's like a cleanse kind of thing. And, and she's dead now. She went like <laughs> Bad joke. 13 days. She just, Lord. Yeah, she just got to three. She was like, I'm fine. Got to four. And eventually she was like, I'm just going to make this decision every morning. And then every morning she would wow. wake up and be like, yeah, I still feel fine. And then at day 13, she said the reason she, maybe it was 11, but it was like north of 10. And uh, she was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Mexico for vacation. I don't want to like, you know, break the fast when I'm like at a bar and like, you know, I haven't eaten and I'm about to drink and da, 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 da. And that was like yeah. the only reason she stopped. Uh I, it was just so impressive. She was like, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, maybe five is too low. <laughs> <laughs> the, the closest that I can think of from recent history, and this wasn't a 50% chance one, but I think it kind of falls into this category was my friend was getting married and we did a mini bachelor thing the morning of, but it was like a Austin health people bachelor thing, which involved uh, all of us sitting in a sauna together and talking about what we appreciated about him, what we were excited about for him with marriage, sharing things like that. And 10, 15 minutes into the event, I think we all start to realize that none of us wants to be the first guy to say, <laughs> let's go get in the cold plunge. <laughs> and so it was, I'd say it was definitely, no, I, I don't know. I don't know where I would, put my estimation on if I would be the first person, but it's, you know, all, all of the guys are equally crazy as me about this stuff, right? If it were a normal crew, I'd be like, okay, 0% chance. I'm going to be the first person to want to get out. But in this crew, it's kind of like, I, maybe, I don't know. And it, it was, it was literally until somebody said like, okay, I'm starting to like blackout. We need to get out. <laughs> he, he was like, I'm starting to see spots and things. So we should get out. And, uh, and I mean, I was totally there too. <laughs> I was really loopy. Uh, so that, that was pretty hard, but I don't know. I mean, the, the marathon example was, was that was me, right? Where I, mm -hmm. On the one hand, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'll hit this time. But on the other hand, it was probably 80, 90% that I could hit it if I set my mind to it. I don't know the last time I did this thing with 50%. And I think this is just another way that school kind of messes with our heads. Because if you're if you're below 90%, then you failed, right? <laughs> so you, you should only do things where you can get a 90% yeah. chance of success or else it's not worth doing. And that's probably not the best mentality to have. 
like I still think the hardest thing I ever did, I physical thing was the Tahoe Spartan where it like snowed and hailed and rained that was a and crazy there was the dust race. storm. So it was like that 14 was the miles. Best race ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like 40 degrees out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's colder, colder at the top. We were at 8,000 feet of elevation. That was yeah, awesome. 4,000 feet of elevation gained during the race. Oh, it was only 4,000? Oh, during the race. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think it was 5,000 total of up and down. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But it was anyway, a considerable was a amount. 14 yeah. miles. It snowed, rained, hailed. There was a lightning storm. Someone died during the lightning storm. Oh, wow. I don't know if you knew this. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know this. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because Nick was on the slopes because he got stuck in the storm, so he couldn't right. run. He did like hide them in the trees. Uh, so he was the one telling us about it later. Um, and then, but I, you know, I was thinking about it like, during the race. It crossed my mind, like somewhere near the end, I was like, "Wow, this is the hardest thing I've ever done." But I always knew I was going to finish the race. Like, even if I yeah. crawl to the end, there was no question about whether I would finish it. So it's like the hardest thing I ever did had a hundred percent chance of success, which is really sad in retrospect like, <laughs> <laughs> which means it was not nearly hard enough uh, uh well you you had problems with fasting right Adil? didn't you get terrible headaches from it uh not headaches i just didn't have the willpower i've only made it three days so i oh. i but i haven't tried in seven years now six okay. years so okay. yeah well that's like another thing in the book right like he says get hungry that's like another one of the things yeah. about being uncomfortable I do this think is actually, go ahead, Adil. I think we're slightly thinking on the wrong axis here, though, because it's, uh, I think the creativity aspect, like it has to be some sort of a wonky challenge. Otherwise, yeah. you could for just the Misogi, say, like, yeah, Misogi, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you could just otherwise say, you like, train for it. Yeah. Well, you can train for it, or you can just say something absurd, like, I'll run a thousand miles. And it's like, well, yeah, you won't, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the, it's like, I'll hang on but, monkey bars or whatever, like something, something that's, on an axis you just don't even consider otherwise. Yeah. yeah so it's got to have some kind of creativity to it. Yeah. The, I mean, you could do, there is one challenge that I'd done that you're right that this might not be creative enough, but in college there was at one point I did this thing that was like 5,000 pushups in 10 days. You <laughs> wow. could do them on whatever cadence you want. You could do 500 a day. You could do like 300 one day, 700 the next day. I didn't make it. I didn't make it. It was, it was a lot because the thing that you don't realize is that first day you can definitely do 500, just break them up. Like, I mean, especially cause I mean, at that time I was easy, like, I could do at least a, a, like three, four sets of 50 without like, like kind of back to back. So I was like about 500 in a day. If I do like four sets in the morning, four sets at night, like, you know, a few others random times in the day, like it, like I have enough recovery time. So I thought it would be easy, yeah. but then it's like, you get progressively more sore. Yeah. And I think by like day three, Builds the up. longest set I could do was like 20. And then I just like, I just like, it got even worse. Like it just, there was wow. no chance of making it to 5,000. Like I was See, way short of it. You really should have tried to do a thousand the first day or something. And then <laughs> let them no, but that off. might even, yeah. Yeah. Like Matt, like to scale it from the beginning and then take yeah, it right yeah. off each day. Yeah. Not 500 a day each day. Right. Which right. is what I was thinking going into it. But that, yeah, you're right. Adil, that's probably not creative enough. But that's maybe one where I actually thought I probably had an 80, 90% chance of hitting it and, and didn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think the core idea that doing doing these wonky and big challenges really resets your baseline on mm-hmm. what you can handle. I think it's it's so true because I'm sure you guys have had this experience of, I, I know for me, because I've done a couple five-day fasts now, 
And whenever I'm hungry, it doesn't really bother me that much. I, yeah. because it, it's like, okay, the hunger is there, but it's not like that annoying. And I know that if I wait, it'll go away. Or I know that if I had to, I could go for a few days and probably be fine. And so it, it really changed that relationship where I think people who have hardly ever skipped a meal, they feel that hunger impulse and they immediately need to say it, right? They need immediately need to respond to it. And so it changes that reaction. I've noticed this with heat too, where I was, <clears throat> I was doing all of my race training in Austin in the summer. So I was running in the 90 plus degree heat with humidity. And I've, I, I was basically like, uh, I, I would have to stop a decent number of runs because my body temperature would get too high. And I would mm-hmm. just like, I was gonna, I was basically going to collapse, <laughs> like, like not quite heat stroke, but hot. bad. Yeah. Yeah. And from that, whenever I was outside and hot and just sweaty, it, it wasn't really annoying. Right. It was like, well, I'm not that hot. Right. Like I know what it feels like to have my body temp hit 104, 105, whatever now. So it's like, if I'm not there, then like, this is kind of fine. And I mean, the sauna does that for you too, right? Like you get crazy hot and then regular heat doesn't bother you. Cold plunges do this for the cold. I think we are just amazingly adaptable creatures in general. And for all these things, we're just not stretching our limits in everyday life. I have a friend who he doesn't live in New York anymore, but when he, when he did, he would climatize himself uh, or I guess like acclimate himself to the cold by just continuing to wear shorts and short sleeves in the winter and just walk around like that. And he wasn't cold. It was like cold for like the first few days. And then it would be like, you know, January. And he's like, yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Like he would would also do cold plunges and stuff like years ago. So he was more like Mm -hmm. he was doing other things to, to acclimate himself to cold. But it was one of those things where he looked crazy because he's walking around in shorts and short sleeves. But like, we probably are able to handle things like that considering, you know, people lived without central heating or anything for a long time and have gone yeah. on explorations to the Arctic. And I mean, it's, it's it, like we obviously as a, as a species are capable of doing stuff like that. Because let's face it, New York doesn't get that cold compared to the Arctic. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Even at CMU when uh the spring would roll in like the first day above 30 35 degrees people would go out and have picnics and actually like yeah. i remember like i would do that too and i don't have like a particular tolerance for the cold but i think it was because we had come up to 35 from like 15 the week prior i was like yeah i'm up 20 degrees i'll put on a t-shirt yeah, it feels good Whereas- yeah, I spent you know a chunk of the last year in california and i started getting affected by like 55s which back in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. would have been laughable. I'm like 55. It's like, it would have been a beautiful day. Yeah, let's Pittsburgh. go out on a tank yeah. top to get some sun. <laughs> That's the funny thing about living in Austin with and having come from the East Coast and having lived in Pittsburgh and Connecticut, where my cold and rain tolerance is definitely way higher than, than Texans. Yeah. 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 And so you'll you'll go out in a, a modest cold or a modest rain. 
and or, well, one people just won't go outside. They'll be like, "Oh no, it's raining!" Like we have to. Yeah, it's like indoors. LA people. The same way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas yeah, Pittsburgh, it's like okay, we got six months of it's, shitty gray rain now. <laughs> yeah, learn to live in it. <laughs> you have to do the reverse winter bird instead of like summer in New York, winter in Texas. You got to do like winter in New York, summer in Texas. And there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did great deals yeah. on rent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Save money, get tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so a friend of mine here, actually, I, I thought I was curious if you were going to say the same story as me and you just heard it uh, separately. But a friend of mine here, one year only, I think, did like an accidental cold challenge where over the summer he was just like sleeping with his window open. And then as it got... Uh, he didn't as it got, it. Yeah, it just, as it got colder and colder, he was like, I'll just see how long I can do this. And basically started doing it, I think, through December. And nice. eventually he like gave in, I think it was like snow or something that like forced his hand. Uh, I'll like ask him for the details. I don't remember, but he made it quite a bit of the way into winter. It's like 30 would, degrees in his apartment. Yeah. I would do that if Cosette would let me, but <laughs> she, she's a warm, cozy sleeper. Cool <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> that's why the eight, that's why the eight mattress is so good. I can have my freezing cold side and she can have her warm and cozy side. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it does split sides. That's super cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's Mateo, cool. if you want to sponsor the podcast, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a cool, cool sponsor. That'd be a good sponsor. Yeah. I love my eight mattress. Um, Affiliate link. Go to natalison.com slash <laughs> <laughs> I, I also think another thing that was interesting about the um what's the author's name michael uh easter easter, easter? yeah I, I think what was also interesting is like his d- struggle with alcoholism because that is very uncomfortable i'm sure trying to get past that i mean nat you did i think a whole year right without alcohol yeah, i mean I i've done various alcohol. months throughout yeah. you know the, the past couple of years and it's like every time especially in like social situations at the beginning, it's like, I mean, if you've committed to yourself, you're not going to drink it. Like you obviously go get through it and don't drink, but it is a little bit on, I mean, there is definitely that feeling of discomfort of being like, Oh, you know, I'm not drinking. Nobody's judging you by the way. It's just, you are kind of judging yourself. I've real, at least I do do for myself. It's not that nobody has ever said anything to me in those situations where it's like, Oh, you're not drinking. That's so weird. People are fine with it. It, nobody's yeah. even thinking about about you in that yeah. situation. Nobody cares. You're just, it's uncomfortable for yourself. So I wonder how much of that tied into his interest even in this topic. Because it's, you know, it's, it is very, I can't even imagine like somebody who's an alcoholic, you know, or, or feeling like they're an alcoholic, then quitting, how uncomfortable that must be. What did he say the turning point was? Was there just, I, I forget that part of the narrative. Oh, that was in the beginning. Um, I know there was. I think like one of the things that everyone at some point or really just like maybe once or twice a year should do is because the alcoholism is sort of a stand in for some kind of Mm self-medicating. Yeah. Right. And everyone does something like even if the self-medic and it's like the self-medicating could be something good. could be like, oh, I go and I work out for two hours a day. Right. That's not me. I'm just saying like that could be the thing someone does. And then it's like, okay, great. Like you need something to fill that gap, it may as well be something positive. Um, but I think everyone has something. I think for a lot of folks, it's like engaging in like highly political things. Uh, like this, it, it almost overlaps with like the God shaped hole. Mm. 
That's so interesting. It's like yeah. boredom and meaning, I think. He doesn't use the phrase meaning in the book, but it they strike me as like parallel, maybe even like overlapping circles. That makes sense. Yeah, there, there's that element of like, what do you fill the space with, right? Like you, you feel this space with boredom and for, I suppose, for some people, it's like, okay, I'm going to fill it with conflict, right? Which is maybe where all of the Twitter fighting comes from. And for <laughs> others, you know, I, and for a lot of men, it's like, okay, I'm going to fill it with porn or watching talk girls on Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Some of us fill it with reading nonfiction books and hoping that this will be the one that fixes our life. Uh, <laughs> so everybody fills it with, with something. Some people fill it with work, like work, the, work, work is a common product. one. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. Fortnite. Fortnite. Yeah, Fortnite. Was, uh, yeah video uh, games. Are, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, and there, there's almost some element of like, it, kind of like what we were saying before, where saying no phone is a lot harder than saying more boredom. Mm-hmm. There, there's probably also this element of, okay, well, if you can't get away from obsessing over something to fill the void with, try to find something that's at least a little good for you to fill the void with, right? Where, Well, yeah, it's much better to be addicted to working out than drinking. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I was going to say, I, I know that's... It. That's kind of a common path where people who are who were addicted to drugs or alcohol or who had eating disorders or anything or a lot of things in that umbrella end up getting hooked on exercise and fitness. And on some level, it's it's scratching the same. It's, it's scratching a similar itch, but in a better way. Yeah, there's something that I saw. I don't know where, but it was people who quit smoking. It's it, or it's like e- like people who are ex smokers can identify other ex smokers by the fact that they always have something in their mouth, whether they're chewing on a pen, whether yeah. they're like chewing gum all the time, uh, eating like a snack a hundred percent of the time. Like there's oral fixation. Th- yes, there's like something that has been it's it, that's replacing that behavior. And hey, that's probably it's probably better to chew on a pen than smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. But like it, it it's a you're right. It's like a replacing one behavior for the other. It's not a you you haven't gotten rid of the behavior necessarily, which is yeah. probably a lot harder to get rid of the behavior than to just replace the behavior. He didn't lay this out as explicitly, but it's definitely implicit in the book. And I heard it laid out more explicitly by Josh Whiteskin, either in his book or way back five years ago when he was first on Tim Ferriss' podcast and it really stuck with me. But this idea of the language that we use and the way we approach uncomfortable things being very important and especially being important for our kids. And the, the point Josh was making, which I think Easter would agree with, was that when it's raining outside, most parents will say, oh, it's oh, raining yes. outside. You know, it's bad weather. We can't go outside and play, right? It, it's bad outside. But yeah, rain, rain is just water, right? It's just wet. There's no reason you can't go play in it. It's not like you get sick from getting rain on you. You're not going to get disease, right? You might get cold, but then you can come in and warm up. But it can also be a lot of fun to go play in the rain. And so Whiteskin was saying that whenever it rains, he would always take his son out to play in the rain because he doesn't want him to think mm-hmm. that just because the weather outside is quote unquote bad that you can't have a good time, right? You can always find a way to enjoy 
your situation. And I think there's a little bit of that here where just because it's cold doesn't mean you can't go outside and do things just because it's hot doesn't mean you can't go do things right. Like changing the way you think about those situations can probably make your life a lot more positive and enjoyable. And I, I, I would agree with white skin. I think it's good for your kids. If you're not always being like, Oh no, it's, you know, yucky or bad outside. So we have to stay inside. It's like, "Mm, go play in the rain. It's going to be fine. Right. Change your clothes after. My dad is like naturally very good at this. Like he spent bulk, the bulk of the last two years digging like 80 holes in the backyard and planting trees. And that's like a really good, like Misogi. Like, yeah, he's just, when I, when he found out, I was like going to the gym here. He was like, come dig holes. Cause he's like, really <laughs> but he doesn't lift weights or do anything. He just digs holes and plants trees in the yard. Our neighbors once thought that our family had hired him, that he wasn't like a member of the family and they, they thought he was a contractor. So they were like, Hey, like, could you like work for us? What's your rate? And he was like, no, I, I own this place. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's incredible. (laughs) Wow. But I think a lot of these are actually very obvious. Like, yeah, whatever, like, you know, garden your own yard or like get off the subway two stops early and walk. Or mm-hmm. like wear one less layer in the winter. Right? Walk like these up things the stairs. Like, walk up the stairs. There was yeah. there was that thing where it said the percentage of people who would choose to walk up the stairs rather than go up the escalator was two percent. And I yeah. felt so good about that because I I do that and I get shit from my fiance and <laughs> she's always like, "Why are you walking up the stairs? You're so weird. Like we're just going to like a store or something." I'm like, "No, it's free exercise. That's the term I use, <laughs> dude. That, that's that's the bummer with having a stroller is you always have to find an elevator. Like, oh so, yeah, you know? yeah. Because even even that's if it's a true. light stroller, carrying it up one flight of stairs is just very awkward. Well, you obviously don't want to drop. She'll it. be old enough. She'll be old enough soon, and then you can get her on the free exercise train." next one comes in may i know we're gonna be in stolen life for a while i know i know or you can you know lift heavy things you know hold the yeah well i I was thinking about that because that could be your misogi no stroller get through get through the stroller phase with no stroller (laughs) (laughs) like the the book talks about rucking right rucking is this incredible workout and it i was thinking about it and kind of made me reflect that we don't you know, carry our kids as much as we probably used to. Mm. And if you, because we use strollers and things like that, but you probably just used to always carry them. And to your, to your point, Neil, that is actually almost an interesting challenge of, could I walk two miles carrying a one-year-old, just moving them into different positions and using a sling or whatever, like totally. But could you do it once they're two or three and they're, you know, if they're 30 pounds, okay, you've got them on the shoulder pack. I mean, that's basically a, a ruck, right? And there, there's something interesting there too of the comfort, using comfortable things for child rearing like strollers has also made us less fit. The thing I wonder too is, I mean, I would imagine historically it was women doing a lot of this carrying too. Yeah. So it's like, were women carrying around like a 25, 30 year old, a 30 year old pound? (laughs) So I meant at like 25, 30 years old all day long. Right. And like, yeah, I don't know. That's like, I mean, that's a really interesting uh, thought experiment because I don't know, you know, how many parents would do that today, would carry around their baby all the time. (laughs) And also, I guess at the same time, it probably was a forcing function for the baby to start being more 
self, uh, you know, more independent too. Just like, mm-hmm. you know, the mom's like, Hey, I can't carry <laughs> like, I'd much rather cause humans do have this drive to be comfortable. And so right. the, I could see the mom encouraging the baby to, you know, walk under its own power if possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, not tolerating like, Oh, I want to be in the stroller. Like if the know. options are between walking or being carried in probably kind of uncomfortable position or walking and sitting in a stroller with cocoa melon on the iPad, kid's going to pick the stroller every time. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, we would probably do that too. Like as adults. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and like, I think most Wally world. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, uh, I guess it, it was a forcing function both ways. It was probably the the mom was forced to do a lot more carrying and then the baby was forced to walk probably at a longer distances and for uh, under, you know, even hard terrain probably. Young kids can actually like, yeah. cover crazy distances if they get fit. There, there are like quite a few examples of kids who are in elementary school, uh, like running marathons. And there's like, there's really no indication that it's bad for them if they're not getting injured or whatever. And, you know, they can train for it like anything else. But even supposedly like a five or six year old, if, if they walk a lot can go for miles and miles of walking slash hiking with you if they're used to it, which is pretty interesting because you wouldn't think that a kindergartner could do a four or five mile loop with you, but it seems like they can't. Which I don't know. I think it's pretty cool because Cosette and I've talked about that. We do. We love our two mile loop every day, but it's kind of like, okay, you know, will our daughter be able to walk that? Or are we going to keep having to stroll with her? And it, it seems like they can build up to that distance relatively quickly. Uh, wow, it's pretty cool. They're they're kind of slow, so you've got to be patient. But well, their stride they is so much there. shorter. Exactly, their stride exactly. is so much shorter. But yeah, yeah. Well, and there's also that. I think about this with kids sometimes too. I'm sure you guys, wait, neither of you have dogs, uh, but it, it, one of the like main or one of the big things you learn with a puppy is that a, a tired dog is a well-behaved dog. <laughs> and it's definitely true for kids too. Yeah. Like if they don't get exercised, then they're going to be super rambunctious and crazy. And so there's also that element of like, if your kid is walking four miles a day or something, they're probably just going to be a little more well-behaved later because they won't be overpouring with energy from you know it's true for me too man yeah it's true for me too too. (laughs) if i yeah if i don't don't get my exercise in i'm exactly anxious asshole (laughs) yep have you had that realization sometimes where if you are feeling anxious or or just like in a crabby mood and then you somehow do work out but you you don't make the connection that it's related till after the workout then you're like i'm in a great mood now Wow, all I had yeah, to do everything is feels out. better. Everything's like, yeah. fixed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the thing I, I get that from the sauna cold plunge too. If I don't have yeah. enough time for a workout, but I need a, a quick reset, you just do that. Always does it. Yeah. Yep. The, the two things that have helped me one is I have a bet with Sumon that if I don't send him a workout every day, like an Apple Watch screenshot, I have to send him $50. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, wow. And like, I don't want to send them $50 every day. <laughs> so you don't do, you don't do rest days or are you doing like, I'll uh, do you're rest just sending them $50 a week. It's like a UBI. Yeah, does a long for, walk or, count or. 
I'll do rest days. It's sort of like honor code where like on rest days, I'll go row for 30 minutes and I just do like a mm-hmm. light row. I like have it set to like five out of 10 or something on the cool. resistance, um, which is enough, right? Like rest day doesn't mean I have to do literally nothing. I'm just not like doing a compound. No, but you could day. like go for a walk or something like that, even like a long walk or no, yeah. that, would, that wouldn't count. I haven't tested the bounds of that rule because I just go row. Um, yeah. I do I do two row days uh, nice. and then I do five nice. days actual. And the other thing is our building is 42 stories tall. So I'll do these like 40 story runs. I'll just run up the staircase and oh, it takes like awesome. five or six minutes. Uh, yeah. I started doing it with 24 pounds on. That one's hard because wow. I, can't, I can't run the whole thing. I can run like 20 and then I have to walk the rest. Uh, but that's like, you do that for five or six minutes. It's just game over there's nothing you can do afterwards (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i even on like the gym cardio i don't i don't really run that often anymore i just do stairs and i do that i do the running up the stairs thing my the building i live in is not as uh tall but yeah that's that that's exactly the that is such a good workout because it's quick but Mm -hmm. it also just is i mean you were freaking done if you do that twice you were i mean with the weight i can't even i've never tried it with the weight but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the most I'm, I've done, the most I've done straight was 200 flights, but it was, but it was on a machine, not in a, mm-hmm. not a 200 story building, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it was 200 flights on a, on a machine. But it, I mean, you're dead. I like, I was so dead after. I don't think I've ever tested my cardio to that point because it's just, it's yeah. not, it, it doesn't stop because it's just one stare after the other. I want to yeah. try it with weights though. That actually sounds interesting. Yeah, come over, man. I'll give you the vest. Yeah, let's I got do the it. staircase. I got everything here. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. You got the building. Yeah. <laughs> On this point, actually, this was another interesting tidbit from the book because I think that whenever the advice around exercise comes up, there's always this question of what's the right amount or how much should you mm. do or you know what what's what's a good amount. And he he basically dived into that in the book, and it seems like there's no ceiling. It's just the more you can do, the better. Mm. Obviously, you don't want to get injured and you don't want to so badly overtrain yourself so that you're not sleeping and things like that. But it really seemed like the more intense exercise minutes you get in per week, the less likely you are to die of basically everything, which is pretty cool. The quotation here was a, a wonderful one. It was like, it says the Johns Hopkins scientists found that people who exercised more than three to five times the amount the government recommends were radically less likely to die. <laughs> I was like, maybe the recommendation has something yeah, wrong with a little bit higher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just, I remember I was talking to somebody about training for the marathon and he said, he was like, you know, doesn't every marathon that you run take a year off of your life? What? And... Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I realized that this is actually not that uncommon of a belief. People think that oh, doing wow. that intensive a run is terrible for you. And if you, if you did it untrained and you got super injured or whatever afterwards, sure. And a certain number of people do die each year while running them from often overhydration, actually. Whoa, really? Um, yeah, they, they run really hard and they sweat out all of their salt and they drink a ton of water mm. and then they have a heart attack because they deplete yeah, all their electrolytes. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so statistically, there might be you know some loss of life that comes from running them. But objectively, building up to being able to run that distance and running it is pretty much entirely a great thing for you. 
Uh, but there, there are these kind of like myths that, oh, if I exercise too much, it'll be bad. Or the one you hear from women sometimes is that like, oh, if I lift weights, I'll get too bulky. And it's like a really hard thing to do, right? Uh, you, you have to work pretty hard and eat a, a lot to become, you know, quote unquote, too bulky. Uh, and I just, I, I thought it was cool to see some research that there's basically no upper bound, like as hard as you want to go, go for it as long as your body's handling it. Yeah. You don't need your rest days to deal. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I love rowing though. I really do. I, I just can't even bother with running anymore. I get so unbelievably bored. Uh, well, yeah, maybe, well also, maybe that's a feature. Ah, yeah, it's a feature. Oh, ah. oh no! Walked right into that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but run, running is also the one where it's like, this is kind of bad for your body if you're not doing it on trails, right? Uh, like, yeah, yeah. If, if you're running pounding. on pavement, I mean. It does take its toll. That was in the book, actually, too. Like the amount of weight on your knees, I think. Yeah, that right? was interesting. That that was, that was part there. of the, the the rucking discussion. Was that yeah, rucking? He basically said rucking burns three or more times as many calories as normal walking. If you've got your weighted backpack on, which is huge, and the the body weight impact taking a step of walking is three x your weight. So every step you take the force on your knee and hip and whatever is about three mm. times your body weight. But when you're running, it's nine times. And so he was saying that most of the injuries that happen in the military happen from running. It's the most common source and almost none happen from rucking. So if you want to do outdoor steady state cardio that gets your heart rate up, makes you stronger, more fit, everything rucking is way better than running because you're less likely to injure yourself, which is a pretty useful metric. I mean, Super interesting. it's really hard yeah. to run for a long time without developing some injuries. It's pretty yeah. tough if you're on concrete. How did you yeah. train for the marathon? Like, was it on? I do almost all trail runs for long runs. Trail runs. Okay. Yeah. Cause we've yeah. got the trail around the lake in Austin and yeah, it was like, I, I did all of my long runs on that. It's all dirt. There's almost no pavement. And so I didn't, I, I literally didn't feel it at all, but that the actual marathon was on concrete. And so my, my knees and hips definitely felt it for a few days afterwards. I, mm-hmm. I, I definitely trained for it really well because I wasn't super sore. I wasn't really very injured or out of it afterwards, but I, I could feel the consequence of being on concrete instead of trail by the end of it. I was like, yeah, this is probably not great for me. And that's just with one, I mean, not like people run a marathon every day, but that's with one one marathon it's like if you did let's say people were training on that concrete and accumulating all those miles on concrete it would yeah. be i could see where like the long-term stress injuries come from totally from right yeah, yeah. doing um, yeah you, you've had those yeah twice i had it uh in high school when i was doing cross country we do trail runs and pavement runs and then i had it in 2017 training for the sf half and that one was really bad that one was like there were probably three or four weeks where I couldn't walk upstairs because my knees wow. were so my right knee in particular was just so screwed. Uh, wow. So that was a tough lesson. So I, ever since then, I just don't, I almost, well, not total zero, but I've really cut back on pavement running. It also God, just makes sense. Now. It's like, Oh yeah. How has that been? Oh, it's so fun. It, 
it's the best cardio. It it gets boring doing it inside, but doing it outside and feeling yourself just like fly is really cool. I love yeah. it. Do you have like a good route where you feel like, I don't know, insulated from cars or whatever? I've got a trail that I can ride on right by my house. It's 20 okay. miles out and back, which is great. No nice. cars. Great. I only have to cross one bad intersection to get there, which not bad. I'm fine with those odds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to talk about this idea of Western laziness. Oh, which I yeah. really love. So I'll, I'll read this quotation. Uh, Sogral Rinpoche, Rinpoche. I don't know. I, Sorry. Uh, in his 1992 work, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying calls this checklist phenomenon Western laziness. It consists of cramming our lives with compulsive activities so that there is no time at all to confront the real issues. If we look into our lives, we will see clearly how many unimportant tasks, so-called responsibilities, accumulate to fill them up. Going on as we do, obsessively trying to improve our condition can become an end in itself and a pointless distraction. Yeah, that this idea of Western laziness is such a great phrase because it's exactly what we think of as productivity, where we're checking things off, we're getting things done, we're being productive, we're filling our calendars and our task managers. But to frame that as laziness, I think it, it's just a very interesting way of looking at it, where... um doing tons and tons of little things is just distracting us from the big things and making it harder to confront them, harder to think about them, not just on the micro level of having ideas or personal insights, but also you're not thinking about your life because you're so busy checking things off and just in the rush of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a, it kind of goes back to the anxiety thing where we are filling up our time with, tasks that may or may not be meaningful and that we we might not even we don't even think of them as meaningful but we're kind of all caught up playing this game um and that's yeah that's like that's where the what what's the phrase you used to call it western western laziness. laziness yeah it's like laziness in the sense that you haven't taken the time to think about what's meaningful or not it's not lazy in that you're not working hard because a lot of these people are working very very hard they're just working hard on things that they haven't really thought matter. through yeah, or that don't matter. Almost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's better. It's like not lazy in the micro, but it's very lazy in the macro. It's like you've outsourced all of your macro thinking yeah. to your society, or I don't know if it's just yeah, I don't know if you'd call it society or or what, but you've out you're not doing any of the macro thinking for yourself. Yeah, it's like that line from the Tower: if you if you don't choose your religion, one will be chosen for you. So. If you, if you don't choose what to value and prioritize, then the, the lifestyle that you're born into or surrounded by is yeah. just going to make all those decisions for you. Yeah. Huge Take trap. I suppose that's also exactly what contributes the whole years passing. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, this is the other topic. So meaningless. It's just forgotten. That was the other topic we didn't get to yet that we had highlighted here was how much this like hyper stimulated unconscious but yet repetitive life kind of plays into that time flying by or not having as many memories of your life to like put your hooks into 
and we, we talked about this with moonwalking with Einstein as well, where it's like, if you don't have novelty and big experiences and, you know, a variety of things going on, then it's hard to remember what you've been doing with your life. Like when you, Cosette and I have talked about this because it's a weird conflict where going on vacation is often less fun than being at home in our routine where there are parts of it that are enjoyable, but there's also like, we like having, we like our house and we like our friends and we like having our gym and all of those things. And it's often very exhausting leading up to the trip and exhausting coming back and getting back in the groove of it. But then when you look back at your year, you don't really remember all of the days that you were in your routine and doing the things that you like. And so even if the vacation is lower average happiness than being at home in your routine, the vacation is a lot more memorable and it's part of what gives your life context and some degree of meaning on reflection. It's this weird because of the novelty. Yeah. Because of the novelty, yeah. because of it's a thing that you can remember that you it's did. It's like a versus, bookmark of the year. Yeah. yeah. It's like, Oh, what do we do in April? Oh no, we went there. Like it's a, it's a way to mark the time as well. Exactly. Yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. Cause that is a debate. And then the, yeah, that's such a good point. Cause the other thing is that you, um, when you're not doing these things consciously, you kind of, I don't know. I'm trying to articulate this thought around NPCs where it's like, you could find yourself becoming an NPC <laughs> if you're not careful. Like it's totally. something you can, you can become is not. Yeah. Uh, Cause I could definitely see, especially as we get older, it, it is more understandable how people end up that way. I feel like I didn't understand mm -hmm. this 10 years ago or be like, Oh yeah. People who just like, you know, get a job, like buy a house, get married, have kids. And like, that's all they, and they, you know, that's what they do. I'm not saying everybody in that situation is an NPC, of course, but life does get busy when you add all of those obligations to the table totally. and routine kids kind of need routine, especially when it comes to school and stuff. It's like, they don't need it, but it becomes part like routine becomes more um, fixed when, when there are that many parties involved in planning schedules, it's much harder to take a trip with four schedules than with, you know, one schedule, if it's just you picking up and getting a flight and going somewhere. And so I think, you know, as you get older, it's also, it's more understandable how people end up there, but it also becomes more imperative to kind of take actions to not end up there. It's uh, so, kind of like what you're talking yeah. about, Nat. Yeah. I basically NPC 2016. And it's just one of those years where without prompting myself, I can barely recount a significant thing that happened that year. And then every year since then, at the end of the year that year, I was like, what the fuck did I do? So ever since then, I'll like, I actually keep a list in Notion. I've started doing it since 2017 of like new mm. things I did a particular year. That's it cool. overindexes slightly on novelty, which is not ideal, but it was just like 2016 was just such a bad year. And I have to open up the photos app and go back to photos I took that year to be like, oh, that happened. Yeah. Um, so I'd rather overcorrect. But it was weird. Like I had an, I was only like 22 and I had an NPC year. Yeah. No, it like, can happen. I can totally, and, and it's also, yeah. that's another stage of life. That's not that uncommon. I, I think for people to fall into that because in college, a lot of the novelty is made for you. Like it just happens. 
because mm-hmm. of, you know, you live near all your friends, you live, you know, yeah. you're just, you're on a college campus, the academic year, you know, you're a junior one year, then you're a senior the next year. So it's, it's not, it's much easier to fall into that trap once you're working and you lose those kind of societal uh, milestones. Yeah. And I was just concerned about like mundane things. Like I was like, I gotta start paying off my student loans. I live in this kind of shitty place in Berkeley. Like, uh, like the place was so bad. Nat came to visit me that March and I didn't take him inside. <laughs> do you remember that, Nat? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We went down to San Jose and stayed with my parents. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was like, man, I, I can't let Nat see what I'm doing here. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> that, no, it goes to talk about that a little bit with family stuff too, where we go back and forth on if we want to have a quiet year where it's always like, okay, next year, we're just going to take it easy, not do anything big. Like it's going to be calmer. There's not going to be a, you know, these new anchors and it sounds good. But then there's also this element of like, I don't know. Every now and then you'll, you'll hear an older person say like, Oh, life just slows down after a certain point, you know, not as much happens after a certain age. And it's, it's very much just a mentality because obviously there are people in their 50s, 60s, 70s who are still doing cool stuff every year, still having new experiences, learning new things, writing books, trips, whatever. Uh, but, and yeah, to your point of deal, it's like one, recording things helps but two you do have to like force a little bit of the novelty in yeah. right or 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 else it'll be created for you right i'm sure you guys have had this experience of like okay between weddings and family trips there's no time for me to do the trips that i want to do so how do you balance that right and <clears throat> i don't know the 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 right amount of novelty for a happy life I think is a in- interesting challenge for, for those yeah, who and it's possible, get to ask the question. And it's possible to skew too far on the novelty side too, and then really crave yeah. routine. Yeah. Uh, Cause I've felt that as well, where it's like, it's like every week there's something going on and then you're just like, I just want a week or two of nothing. And I think, so I think it's like a constant balance of, of trying to find that equilibrium and it might be different depending on, you know, where you are in life, like Nat, has this changed, like the novelty factor, does that change with a child? Because now the child has all these sort of milestones and new things that they're doing that put an anchor in the ground for you. I suspect it will, you know, we, I guess it's too early for a lot of, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely some of that, but also for the last five years, six years, I've moved basically every year. Or had some big like location thing happen or some big life event, right? It's like 2017, Cosette and I moved in together. We were living in New York. 2018, we moved to Austin. 2019, we bought a house and got married. 2020, we got the farmhouse and we're doing the Airbnb. Like 2021, we moved again. 2022, we moved again. Like even just the movement anchors are pretty big anchors. Yeah, and now we've decided we're not doing that for at least you know five six years or whatever. And there, there's a little bit of a, a fear element, if I'm being honest, of like, oh, that that's a big thing that happened every year, and now like, what's going to fill that space? But I think you know, kids definitely do, right? Like, there's there's little 
anchors that we think of with our daughter that we index the year on. And I'm sure as you have more kids, you have more of that. Um, but I think also like races, a deal are another great one that that's like a thing you anchor the year to. That's more meaningful than just another normal day of working out. Yeah. Uh, like those kinds of events are very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's got, I know I hear the angry, <laughs> angry traffic outside. <laughs> oh, wow. I can't hear it. My bad. <laughs> oh, <it's too> funny. <laughs> yeah. Can you do something about that? Adil? <laughs> yeah. Go down there. All right. Uh, in our last few minutes here, is there anything else that we should touch on that we didn't get to? No, I think the big, think- the big takeaway is, you know, find more ways to be uncomfortable and embrace that. And, you know, I think we can all, at least I walked away from the book being like, there's probably, you know, seven different things here that I can do yeah. and, and try and, you know, spend some, spend some time thinking about that and also just lean into more things that I already do. Like the, you know, fasting, maybe go longer on the fasting. The rucking seems awesome. I definitely want to start doing that. Nat, you said you've been rucking, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. I, yeah. So yeah, I need to buy the incorporating it into morning walks. I haven't it. done it the last few weeks, but I need to yeah. back up again. I've been kind of lazy. Yeah. So there's some good takeaways nice basically in this book. I, I, I know if you like people listen to the episode, sometimes they feel like they got everything from it. I think we covered a lot of the big points, but there's a lot of cool studies and I think details in this book mm-hmm. that were, you know, we, we wouldn't be, we weren't able to get into all that detail. Um, it's worth reading I think for the caribou really hunt story too. Yes. That, that narrative is very fun. It's also an easy read. It's, yeah. it, he wrote it in a very easily readable manner. Like I, I started this book last week. I don't feel like I've, you know, been really digging in and reading a ton. And, you know, I finished yesterday, but still it was like a six day, very manageable read. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I was going to say that one of the things that, or one of the other takeaways or lessons that I've been forming a stronger opinion of is that so many of our problems come from just not exercising enough. Right. Where, and that seemed like a, a, a sub theme in there was one, obviously this boredom and comfort element, but also just doing, taking on more physical activity because there, there's just a lot of things that we take for granted as problems that might not be problems if we were exercising as much as we should. Right. Mm. So the, <clears throat> you think about like the low carb diet or getting sugar out of your diet and like carbs and sugar are actually very useful if you're exercising a lot, right? Yeah. Because your your body's using them for fuel to do things, but they're they might be harmful or might just you know spike your blood sugar, do other bad things if you're not exercising, right? Like I think about using a continuous glucose monitor and you have this high carb meal and then your blood sugar spikes, but it doesn't spike if you go out for a walk or do some activity afterwards or if you're already depleted from doing a hard workout earlier right so you know one way to look at that at those data is to say oh well i shouldn't eat these high carb meals but the way i think about it more now is like oh well i should be exercising more so that i'm actually depleting the glycogen in my muscles and whatever so it's being refilled by these meals uh right and the, yeah we evolved the, to we evolved to crave this stuff for you know yeah. some reason for sure yeah the the other one that I heard recently, I think this was a TS podcast again, but was that 
uh, heart disease is there's a much lower incidence of heart disease amongst like endurance athletes and uh, people who work out a lot or people who do a lot of cardiovascular work, even with even when you control for cholesterol levels. And it seems to be because their arteries are a lot bigger. Mm. So it's just, because yeah, it, it's <laughs> yeah. harder to have clogged arteries if you have big arteries from exercising. Yeah. And so it's this interesting question of like, okay, is the problem, is the heart disease problem really a cholesterol problem? Like, obviously it is, but is the cholesterol a problem because everybody's sedentary and so their arteries are just like shrinking and get clogged a lot easier, right? Like how much I think is a lot of, yeah, I think a lot other? of. A lot of health issues are, are these like multivariable problems. Yeah. You know, in the same way that, yes, yeah, smoking, ha- there's tons of evidence that it's really bad for you. And, you know, we've, we've seen that play out in the US. But then you have like these outliers of like Japan, you know, longest lifespans. They have one of the highest smoking rates in the world. And yeah. they also have one of the lower uh, heart attack rates in the world, too. And, you know, it could be maybe smoking is so bad for you in the U.S. if you're American. Oh, and by the way, I've seen there was even a study of Japanese Americans and they had the American levels of uh, heart disease. It wasn't that they... So it's not they, genetic. It's not genetic, it seems like. It seems to be a, a dietary and lifestyle thing. And so maybe smoking is not as bad for you if you eat a lean, you know, lean fish and rice and, you know, you're not eating like GMO corn syrup all the time. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Basically, I'm saying there, there's probably multiple variables to this this question. And smoking is just, you know, one of those. But yeah, the heart disease thing is such an interesting one where it's like cholesterol. Yeah, it's tied to it. But is it tied to it? Is it tied? To, it's, it might not be the right variable to be tracking. Right. Like it well, might be a downstream variable. We definitely over index on what we can measure. And as soon as there's a yes, new measurement. That's the right way to put it. Yes. There's a new obsession around controlling the thing we can measure. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point. And it, I, I worry we're probably doing some of that with like um, with the blood sugar spikes when you see people I, posting all that all the time. I really think yeah. that that's just like the new thing that we can measure. And so we're going to yeah. focus yeah. on yeah. treating the blood sugar spikes. And I I really think you can take those in in either direction. Right. Like, yeah, I. I really don't think that you're living healthy if you're having a low carb diet and doing no cardio. Like that's not right. You're you're going to have great. You might have good inflammation markers, and you're going to have no blood sugar spikes, but you're probably like pretty weak cardiovascularly, and like and, and your arteries might not be very wide. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You, you know, you, lacking muscle, you may still have the same stuff, heart disease. You might be tired, yeah. right? It's like just because we can measure this thing doesn't mean you should directly optimize around it. Why do we believe that the spikes are necessarily bad? Like if you think of someone who's fasting and then feasting, wouldn't I, you have to have spikes? Spike. Yeah, that's a yeah, good point. Yeah. I, th- I think the argument is that it might be reducing your insulin sensitivity over time. And so it can lead to mm. prediabetes and all of these things. So it- Which to which, be fair, that is probably is not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 It is true, but also, you know, a great way to not get- pre-diabetic from eating a lot of carbs is to use the carbs, right? It's kind <laughs> yeah, of goes back to this problem. Context. Of, I mean, and there's also yeah. this context thing, like to your point, a deal, like if you're fasting, then feasting, and that's the cause of the spike, that's one thing. It's another thing if it's, you know, spiked because you've sat around all day and then you ate, you know, a piece of cake. 
And then, you know, and then you, you know, continue to sit around and that's why it's like, that's like a totally different context than, wow, I was starved and now I'm eating something and it's spiked because of that. But I guess my point was more that the, the monitors are hyper-focused on one variable minus the context. And then that, you know, you like to Nat's point, you can minimize the spikes by just not eating carbs and not doing any cardio. But is that really like the outcome that you're optimizing for? Alrighty, should we wrap All up right. there, guys? Yeah, successful episode. Uh, obviously, the book was "The Comfort Crisis" by Michael Easter. I uh, grab a copy at Amazon. Links are in the show notes, and definitely say hi to Michael on Twitter. Let him know that we sent you. If you are listening on iTunes or Spotify, please take a second and leave us a nice review. We definitely appreciate that. Helps more people find the show. I think it probably helps us get guests in the future too, right? Yeah. If somebody asks me to be a guest on their show, the first thing that I do is go look at their podcast page and see how many reviews they have. So (laughs) if you you want us to be able to get cool guests, leaving us a nice review definitely helps. Yes, please Uh, do that. What else? What else should we say? Tell people about it. That always... That seems oh, yeah. to be the way most people hear about this show is yeah, you know that, that that's the yeah. that's the number one ask is if you if you enjoy this episode or enjoy this podcast, just text it to one friend. Just text it right now, all right? Because like that that's how this grows. It, it, people people aren't getting a feed of podcasts they should listen to. They're they're hearing about it from friends like you. So you know, hook us up with that show recommendation. We really appreciate yes. it. Yeah. <laughs> Adil's laughing. Am I? <laughs> I love it. No, this is. <laughs> I want to text it to you're somebody. Watching a, you're watching him. You want to text it to somebody. Yeah. You should already be texting it to everybody. Man. <laughs> uh, it's in the contract. What it's in the co host contract. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. So for I'm now. At Nat Elias. Yeah, for now. <laughs> as long as Twitter exists. As long as Twitter oh, exists. And if you have uh, comments on the opening quote, and oh, or yeah. any thoughts about YouTube, which we're now posting these to YouTube. We'd love to hear them. Totally. And I think that's it. Oh, next book is Analects of Confucius. So we're going to take a week off for the holiday. Two of us couldn't make it next week. And you know, it's going to be crazy with Christmas and New Year and stuff. So uh, we'll take next week off and then we'll be back <clears throat> in the new year with the Analects of Confucius. Uh, if you enjoy uh, any of the stoicism books so meditations or letters from Se- or letters from a stoic letters from seneca which i guess it technically is basically but <laughs> it is true uh then you'll probably like analects it, it it's a similar you know actionable direct clear easy to read and uh it's very aphoristic very quotable so yeah and that's a return to the read. great book series yep so yep. so we'll see you all in two weeks thanks for listening